1: Hello and welcome to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast, and to April's Forest Ramble discussion, although it will be May by the time that you're listening to this. I'm your host, Rich Ferraro, and in this podcast we will cover It's still tight at the wrong end of the table. Can the Reds beat the drop, and how many points will it take to do it? We're going to discuss midfield matters and keeper conundrums. And not for the first time, we're going to ask, why so many injuries? Has any other team lost so many players at once? All listen more as we're joined once again by Jeremy Davis with the 1865 sketch. We'll discuss the recent show of solidarity with Hillsborough victims and survivors. And we have another round of our Nottingham Forest quiz. All coming up in this episode of 1865, the podcast which watches every match and is being produced this week by a small black cat. So let's say hello to today's panel. And as we did last month, we're just going to ask them briefly to introduce themselves and who they think will be in the Premier League bottom three at the end of the season. So I'm going to start with you, Tom.
0: I think it's I think Southampton are already gone. Everton are pretty awful, who I think will go because they just can't score, and Leeds getting beat every
1: week heavily by teams who are not even in the top 10. OK, thank you very much, Tom. And just to explain to our listeners, we are recording this before the Everton-Leicester showdown. Um, Adam, I'm going to come to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, same as Tom. Southampton, Everton um, and Leeds. I, I really can't see any other the three. Um, couldn't even think of another team especially even also, uh going down. So also.
1: Uh, we'll see. We'll come back to your thoughts on that a little later, Adam. And last but not least, Stephen.
4: Yeah, I can't argue with that really. Southampton, Everton leads to go down. I think Leicester are going to have just enough to get over the line and ever the optimist. I think Forrest are going to do it and be
1: safe. Okie doke. And these are brave calls, bearing in mind that we're recording this just after the Brentford match. So you've told us whether or not you think the Reds will beat the drop and, and, In many ways, I wish Maradon in the Midlands was here because he provided the voice of treason last time. Uh, We'll go into that in a little more detail in just a minute. But as I said, we are recording this not long after the Brentford away game, which Forrest obviously lost in stoppage time, damaging feeling defeat. Let's hear what Steve Cooper had to say after the game.
5: Did you see enough from your team today to make sure that you can survive? I see enough every season?
1: day. Okay, I, see yeah. en- I see enough every day in terms of the
0: application, in terms of the work ethic, in terms of the quality. You know, and, and in all three games this week, we've, we've shown that. We just, obviously, the, the game the other night, we've got the right result. But the ones, uh, the side of that, we could have got something out of both of them. Um, but we didn't. So
1: um, we've just got to keep going. So I'm just going to... Before we come to our panel, I'm just going to contrast this with the report that John Percy wrote up in the Telegraph after the match. Now, quote, this felt like another self-inflicted defeat with late controversy and forest owner Evangelos Maranakis was understood to be furious. Though Maranakis is highly unlikely to dismiss Cooper at such a critical stage of the season, he was seething with the head coach's substitutions and his management of the squad. So, Panel, what do you think? I mean, you've all think that forests are going to stay up, but how many points do you think it will take to do it? And and what do you think about Steve Cooper's remarks and those reports that were in the Telegraph? And Tom, as you were at the game, I'm going to come to you first. Um, I think
0: 34, 35 points will do it. I've, I've always maintained that 34 points. It's not going to be as high as in recent years because of um, I think they. World Cup and the timing of it so it had a bit of an effect on everybody and it's very tight down there. Um but then with Mar- Maranakis, it's, it's to be honest with John Percy, I mean he's a he's quite a um, reliable journalist and kind of I don't know if it was the fact that Steve Cooper like not dismissed it, but he's just like watered it down a bit regarding the John Joe Show. We don't know if Marinakis was actually there yesterday, but he might have like watched it on a stream or whatever. But with the substitutions, it's one of them where one, he come off with his look like his shoulder. Uh, Johnson, I don't know what the injury was there, and Danilo went off. So there's your three injured players who went off and he had to make changes. And Yeah, we could have managed the game a bit better because in the first 80 minutes of that game, Brentford had a lot of the ball, but they didn't really threaten us. And then but it seems in the last few games, even against Leeds, we stopped doing the right things. So we scored the goal against Leeds, we stopped doing and then they beat us. Then yesterday we, started, we stopped doing those things and then just inviting more pressure on them. I've said it a lot of times this season, we've got to try and get that second goal because it's a long time. In the end, it was 52 minutes from when we scored to the end of the game that We've Been sitting on a one-nil lead, and with how little possession we have, ball's going to keep coming back. And then obviously, we were down to 10 men because uh, Danilo went off, didn't he? And we didn't have that next phase or whatever for substitution. So, whether that's where Maranakis is coming from, um, and it left us um, with a bit of an uphill struggle with the last 10 or so minutes with 10 men, but uh, yeah, we've got to, first and foremost, we've got to get that second goal. Um I mean, I know it's easier said than done, but um, you can't rely on trying to win a game 1-0 with just like 18% or 90% possession against a team like Brentford.
1: Mm. Uh, thank you, Tom. And of course, you can listen to Tom's uh, considered thoughts in the match report, which should be in your feed. So if you found this podcast, if you look back down the list, you'll find our Brentford versus Forest match report. Stephen, we are going to talk about injuries in a little bit more detail a little bit later on. But Tom said in the match report that he reckons 95% of Forest supporters are still behind Cooper. Um, We've voiced our thoughts about social media many times on this podcast uh, about how it's not necessarily uh, the place for reasoned arguments. There's a few vocal opponents of Cooper saying that he should have been sacked. He's making all the wrong decisions. I think the one that people will be talking about yesterday is the decision when Johnson came off to not put on Emmanuel Dennis, who would have been the nearest to a like-for-like swap, and putting on Cech Koyate, who really wasn't very up to speed, it seems. So I think we all accept that the head coach, as much as the players, as much as the club themselves have to bear some responsibility. But what do you make of that kind of type and level of criticism that we are seeing? And and what do you make of the assertion that the majority of fans probably are still behind Cooper, Stephen?
4: In my experience, that assertion's correct. I've I've not, in all of the games I've been to this season, heard or seen any Cooper out sentiment there's been frustration with what's been going on on the pitch, but there's been no vocal anti-Cooper sentiment in the grounds. I've been to home and away. So yeah, I think the vast majority of the match going support is behind Cooper and social media is very much a almost a life of its own. And I think it gets blown out of proportion. It's its own little bubble, if you like, and, I think it can be given too much weight sometimes and too much emphasis placed on what people are saying on social media. It's not always reflective of what the match going fan thinks. I yeah, I I believe that the fans are fully behind Cooper. The City Ground on Wednesday night was fully behind Cooper and the team. And look what happened. We had a fantastic result and the atmosphere was brilliant. And, and the atmosphere contributed to the result, as Baz and I said in our match report then. It did, yeah. And it was another example of the, the fans just getting behind the team and getting the job done. And you can see why our home form is so good. And even though our away support is brilliant, there isn't 30,000 of them every game away from home, sadly. Otherwise, I think that would really boost our chances of getting something on the road. As for the injuries, I mean... It's just it's getting ridiculous now. What what kind of curse have we got over the the club at the minute with injuries and players just dropping like flies? Every game we're losing key players and now there's potential that Danilo could be out and add that on top of the unlucky injury that Nico Williams suffered on Wednesday night, just as he's starting to play some of the best football we've seen from him in a forest shirt and
1: Steve Cooper must be wondering what he's done to deserve this kind of luck. And as I say, we will come back to that uh, in part two of today's podcast. Now, Adam, you posted in our group chat a little bit of an analysis of if we're working on the assumption that Southampton are in deep, deep trouble and may not get out of it, but you wrote an analysis of the other teams vying for the bottom two places. So do you just want to talk us through that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a quick one before I do that, though. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't understand why. And I'm not slating the guy; he's just doing his job. But I don't understand why John Percy's posting about Maranakis. What What is he gaining from it? Why Why are we talking about it? Why are we having? I I don't understand what these these po- these pieces that he's writing are about. Why Why is he saying? Oh, the the owner was really angry about the result. Well, yeah, of course he was. He's not going to be jumping for joy, is he? He's not going to be absolutely buzzing that we've just lost two, one to Brentford. Why? He's not writing a piece that saying Todd Bowley's not happy about Chelsea losing or uh, the Leeds owners aren't happy about them losing Everton. Do you know what I mean? Why is it? Why is he writing pieces about the forest owner, not being happy about us losing games? I mean, it, of course he's, like I say, he's not going to be happy. Is he like, the more we talk about it, the more it gives it this airtime, and the more it allows people to to dig at Cooper or to, you know, to potentially, you know, derail the attitude, you know, behind the scenes with the players and the change room and all that sort of stuff. I, I don't get it. I don't get why he's posting it. Look, he's just doing his job. I get that. It's all for clicks, whatever. But why on earth is he talking about Maranakis' opinion so much? Maranakis is the owner that stuck with Steve Cooper all season. I just, I don't get it. He's not he's not highlighting any other owner in the Premier League and not being happy about results because every owner is not happy when they lose, surely. But the, Adam,
0: the thing is, though, he's going to ask questions anyway, regardless. So why make a big thing, a thing of it? You know what I mean? He probably has a conversation at the end of the game and those questions are going to be asked anyway. So like I don't like you say, I don't know why they're making a big thing about that. Um, trying to make a
1: thing out of absolutely something that might happen after every single game. Stephen, I'm I'm going to come to you on that topic and I'm going to assert, and do correct me if I'm wrong, that this is basically the life of an embedded journalist in an organisation. So he's getting this feed and journalists have to kind of toe the line between putting out stories, but also keeping the people, not biting the hand that feeds, if we put it that way, keeping those people sweet as well. And we've had criticism of Radio Nottingham in the past, that they they kind of are a bit soft um it seems as though that's a criticism that that could be leveled at one or two of the print journalists so Stephen, uh, yeah what's your take on that
4: there's a narrative now isn't there that maranakis is trigger happy and it's born out of the i think the first few years of his time at forest with the managers that we got through and then when you factor in the status at Olympiarcos, where they've had three managers this season, I think they're on a fourth now and it all adds up to a sacking culture and it creates a narrative and that's a nice, easy story for a journalist to work with and say, well, yeah, Maranakis. Okay. He's, he might be unhappy with the result, but Maranakis who hires and fires managers like it's going out of fashion he's really unhappy about the result. It's that kind of spin that gets put on it. And I think there's too, again, it's it's too much of a story for someone like said journalist from earlier on to ignore. It's a nice convenient line for them to take and and weave some factual, uh, you know, some, some facts in there but weave them into it in a way that kind of
1: embellishes it and makes it okay, seem like so, a bigger deal than it is. So on that topic, then, as as our journalistic correspondent here, Stephen, um, if we take the assertions that Adam and Tom just made, is it basically a situation whereby uh, news organisations, journalistic organisations, obviously they are money making enterprises, and yes they will play for clicks and they will also know that bad news stories generate more righteous anger and therefore more clicks and therefore that increases advertising revenue and and therefore the journalists themselves find themselves towing the line between what is a story and what will create publicity
4: yeah i think that's dictated from it and if you look at certain publications i think that's that might be where that softly softly approach comes in as well because they don't want to lose access to the club because the club's the only way that they're going to get stories to put on their websites or in their newspapers and sell them so it, it's it is that circle that feeds round and and creates this kind of journalism um when you look at the facts overall on cooper's time at forest I think Maranakis has been pretty reasonable in terms of he's backed him. He's kept with him. If if stories are to be believed, he's even gone over the heads of directors of football to keep hold of Steve Cooper. And I think as a fan base, we, we feel that that's been the correct decision and the correct course of action. So again, I think there's paper talk coming into it. I think there's a narrative that's being fed into and it's easy stories, easy clicks and, convenient writing really so look at it objectively as well steve cooper is not going to lose his job this late into the season it'd be a pointless exercise so why are we giving so much attention to the story because it doesn't matter one way or the other steve cooper is going to be
1: here till the end of the season and then let's just see where we are then adam coming back to you before we do your analysis i'm just going to throw out a theory that I have talked about um, in elsewhere. Maranakis has kept Cooper in post, not because he thinks it's the right thing to do, but because from a PR point of view, if he sacks Cooper, he loses the majority of the fans. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I could see it being true. Um, I think uh, the, the problem is, as a football owner, when you get a reputation for something, then like Stephen says, media outlets, like, you know, fans and just social media in general will always see you a certain way. Um, I don't think Maranakis has ever sacked a manager wrongly in his tenure here. I think it'd be hard to to really disagree with that as a, as a, a point, to be fair to him. Um, but yeah, look, I think Maranakis probably, if the Forest fans were okay with it and there wasn't the huge outpour of backing for Cooper, I think he would have gone after the Leicester game. It, like, If I'm being honest, the Leicester away game we have got beat 4-0. He would have gone then. I think if it if it was down to the owner, potentially that I, that is possible that he could have gone then. Um, but look, I, I just, I, there's a final point on this, I suppose. I'm not slating the journalist in question. I'm more slating the fact that they feel the need as a publication, whoever the publication may be, to come out and say, the owner wasn't happy with Forrest getting beat this weekend. Because what benefit is that to any of us as fans or to the club themselves? That's more the point that I'm trying to make, and I just don't get it. I really don't understand it. Of course, it's for clicks. Of course, it's for yeah. their publicity. Really, easy when Forest lose. The same with the Arsenal fan TVs videos get a hundred thousand views when they lose and ten thousand when they win because people like to see that more. It always creates more buzz. It's just the way it is, but it's frustrating anyway.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I can understand what you're saying. And and going back to Stephen's point about weaving in a grain of truth, I think the key line in that bit that I read was, although Maranakis is un, uh, highly unlikely to dismiss Cooper, he was seething with the head coach's substitutions and his management of the squad. And of course, I think that's, I can understand that because uh, that's an accusation that's been made of Cooper. and And of course, Tom, you talked about that kind of element in your match report. So anyway... Let's leave that to one side for the time being. And I say, Adam, you, you'd, you'd written up a nice little précis um, of, of what you think in terms of there's two, assuming Southampton are deep in, in the mire, let's assume there's two relegation spots. And you've written up a little bit about Leeds and Everton and Forest. Now, before I ask you to go into those details, you haven't put Leicester in there. Tell us more.
3: Um, I don't think Leicester will be in, I think on the final day where Palace we've got, I don't think Leicester will be in the relegation um, sort of final day problems by then. Um, You know, they don't have the easiest fixtures, don't get me wrong, but they do have West Ham at home last game of the season, who I don't think will have anything to play for by then either. So, for me, that keeps Leicester up. But, that's that's the reason I didn't keep them in there. I do think they are too good. I think they've got too much quality. But, so, yeah, what I put here was obviously Leeds, Everton and the Forest, because remember, you only have to be above three teams. You know, it doesn't really matter what Leicester do at this point in time if Leicester are going to go and gallop off into the sunset of staying up. So, I put obviously Leeds have got City away. I, I can't, they're going to get beat. I can't see any other result. Newcastle at home. I don't think many teams beat Newcastle at the minute. West Ham away. Tough, tough game. And if West Ham has still got any shadow of not staying up by that point, that would be huge for them. And I think they'll go, I think they'll beat Leeds as well. The, the The game that maybe you look at for Leeds and say, all right, maybe to get something is Spurs at home. However, I did write this when Spurs was 3 0 down against Liverpool. And yeah, not now, are they? I mean, they, they, they did really well today. And if they produce a second half performance like that at Leeds, Leeds won't beat them either. So I, I've put down here potentially Leeds get two points one away at West Ham one at home to Spurs but that is the maximum I can see Leeds getting um, Everton obviously Brighton away does anyone want to play Brighton away at the moment? Mm. They just thumped Wolves 6-0 this weekend I don't think anyone wants to play Brighton away they've got Man City at home again Man, Man City will win every game for the rest of the season uh, hand on heart I think that might, that's what we'll do we have got Wolves away tough place to go Um, You know, Wolves haven't been brilliant this season, don't get me wrong, but they'll have too much for Everton, especially in Molyneux. And then they've got Bournemouth at home, which a lot of people, and especially Everton fans might have gone, that's the game where we do get something. Uh, Bournemouth look really good. Not anymore. No, not at all. I mean, they're playing with a lot of confidence. They battered Leeds today. You know, so again, I put here that I really think they'll only get two points I said potentially at a, a point away at Wolves, point at home to Bournemouth, but two points for Everton at the moment does, doesn't keep them up anyway. It doesn't even, it, you know, it barely puts them in touch distance with Forest. So I'm not, um, do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not worried about that as such. And then lastly, us. I put, I think, I think we'll beat Southampton. I think they, I think Southampton, as much as they're not confirmed relegated or anything like that, I think they're dejected. I think they're down. I think they're. They've showed a bit of fight against Arsenal and they went. They, they did go ahead against Newcastle, but I, I think we will have too much for them. On a Monday night, under the lights of the City ground, I, I, I think we can beat a lot of teams. So I think we'll beat Southampton. Chelsea away, who knows at this point, right? At the start of the season, I wouldn't have looked at Chelsea away and gone, that's somewhere we can get a point. But at the moment, they're just handing them out for fun, aren't they? So... I've put, we could maybe get a point Chelsea away. Arsenal at home, look, if City have won the league by then, then maybe it's a good time to play a dejected Arsenal. But Arsenal probably beat Forest, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that too much. And then Palace away, the game that people are earmarking as a, a must win. Um, I, I think we can beat them, but I think we could, I think we'll probably get a point. But for the the mathematicians among you, I think Forest get five points out of those. Southampton, Chelsea, Palace is the five points we get. Leeds to get two, Everton to get two. And mm. that might seem, I'm being really like overly positive and stuff. And, you know, that might be the case, to be honest. But for the fixtures I've named, can you really argue with Leeds and Everton getting points in any games that I've not said? Like, if anyone wants to try to, to go in there, that they might get more points on in those games than I think. But I just can't see it. Mm. Tom,
0: um, yeah. If you look at Leeds, they're, they're being battered by um, teams who are not—they're not in the top ten. Like they got battered against Bournemouth for today. Um, I can't remember who did the play before the Leicester game when they got beat. Heavily. Was it Palace or someone like that? Palace, and, yeah. yeah. So
4: Palace but, then Liverpool, where they conceded six, and yeah, you see this at
0: Bournemouth, yeah.
1: I mean, let's be honest, you can't concede six and five goals and that kind of thing and expect to stay up... Cat- oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> With Everton, and this is why I wasn't too fussed about Sean Dyche being manager, because what he tries to do is make the game as scrappy as can be to ruffle up teams and they have just got no quality whatsoever, and... um, um I thought they might get something against Newcastle but then Newcastle started to uh, concentrate on their own game and their quality shown and tomorrow I, I think Leicester will win um, at the King Power I just with their home crowd and if they got Madison playing if Telemann turns up etc and Bardi got a goal against Leeds uh, last week so yeah I- I'll expect Leicester to beat Everton um, tomorrow which it won't be too bad then. You just, like Adam's mentioned, they've got, got Man City and Newcastle next and I can't see them getting anything out of
1: that. Yeah, and and um, Adam's analysis also chimes in with your assertion at the top of the pod, Tom, that Forrest will probably be okay with 34 or 35 points because, as I say, if we get a win against Southampton and then draw in, in one of the other matches, that might actually be enough because, as we've said so many times... All you need is to have three teams who've done worse than you in the division. Um, So that's something that um, we'll be looking forward to and seeing how that pans out. Um, I'm just going to finish this little segment by pointing out that in that message in our group chat, Adam finished off with saying there's so much room for positivity. Now, we're going to move on to a couple of key positions. Uh, A little later on, we'll talk about the midfield. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the position of goalkeeper. And this is what Tom had to say in our match report after the Brentford game. But then he's come to Forest,
0: where we're only getting probably a maximum of 26% possession. And he's got to basically, he's got to be on it for the 90 minutes and that ball's going to come back to him more times than... What his experience at the previous two clubs has been at, and he makes a couple of decent saves, then he just gets overworked. And I'm, I'm not say, I'm not like condoning the um, the saves or the non saves he made against like Leeds, Brighton, and the game yesterday. But you expect him to do hell of a lot. So it's that fine balance is make some decent saves, then he's going to let an easy goal in, and it's just yeah. like. I just don't think he's that used to being overworked as
1: much as he has. <laughs> yeah. And obviously Tom there you were talking about Kaelor Navas and and the spotlight that's been on him after a few incidents recently that have arguably cost us goals with both Dean Henderson and Navas is it the case that like you said Tom that they've just got too much to they've got more to do than they used to and therefore they will. There'll be the occasional moment where they look a bit ordinary.
0: Yeah, um, I do. If you look at, like I said, mentioned on the match report, is that Caelan Adams has played for Paris Saint-Germain, who, no disrespect to the French league, but it's a farmers' league. Their they're, with their quality, they're going to win it every single year. While they've got like the likes of Neymar, Mbappe, and Messi, and in there, then we've got variety in midfield and previous to that he was at Real Madrid where the bad uh, Tony Cruz and um, Luca Modric are probably pound for pound the best two middle fielders along with Casemiro in Europe for the last uh, five or six seasons so he's not going to see much of the ball but here it's just we're a bit like a colander at times aren't we we're just <laughs> trying to hold water and um, just think he's I, he gets overworked compared to what he's been used to
1: in the last 10 or 15 years being at well, which we're doing PSG. Um, Adam, I saw someone comment that the amount of money we're spending on wages for Henderson, who, of course, it's been confirmed now for what it's worth that he's out for the rest of the season. Um, the amount of money we're spending on wages for Henderson and Navas, why didn't they just offer Bree Samba a bucks new contract?
3: Um, who knows? Honestly, that, that, is, that is the million-dollar question. We all know on this podcast how much I love Samba and I was absolutely gutted when he left. Um, Lot on Navas for me. Navas is such a wave for because when people say to me, like, I've got friends that aren't Forest fans, and obviously Caelan Navas is a massive name, isn't he? So they say, oh, I Navas done. And I'm like, he's doing, I don't know, like, because sometimes he'll pull off an absolute worldy and I'm thinking like, there he is, he's world-class. He's a brilliant goalkeeper. And then sometimes he's got this habit to push the ball back out into a danger area or against Brentford, push it into his own net. And I'm like... I've never seen a goalkeeper so inconsistent for me. Like, and look, we could all sit here and say Dean Henderson um, stops that one on Saturday. Uh, he does, in my opinion, but it's irrelevant. I don't understand how he's out for the rest of the season. And that's probably another... It's supposed debate. to be four uh, weeks, wasn't it? <laughs> well, this is the thing. And this has happened a few times this season where players are going to be out for three or four weeks and they're out for the season. You know, like... Uh, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And I, w- I wouldn't like to even go into that conversation. We, you know, people, well, we're going to go
1: into it a little bit later on. Well, on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> people blaming the medical staff and all that sort of stuff. You don't really know what the problem is behind the scenes do you at the end of the day, but I can't understand how he was injured for such a short amount of time with an injury. And it's now going to stop this and he won't play for Forest again, even if we stay up. It's a massive shame. Hmm. But look, Keylor Navas is our goalkeeper now for the rest of the season. That's confirmed. We've got four games left. We've got to get behind him. But I don't know, sadly, I think it was questionable, to say the least, by him. Stephen,
1: uh, is it also that although Navas has made some outstanding saves, sometimes when you are a little bit older as a goalkeeper, there's two things that can be difficult. One is getting down sharpish and the other one is springing up. Um Navas springs up okay, and he does get down to them, but obviously you at the Leeds match, which is one of those glaring examples, Stephen, of, of where he pushed it straight back into the path of an oncoming attacker, and that's not the first time or the last time he's done it. So is it to do with age as well?
4: I wonder, are we just getting him on the way down a bit because he is, what, 37 now? Maybe he is on a bit of a decline, but you'd still expect him to do the basics well and the one at leads, the goal against brighton that those are goalkeeping basics that he's not doing don't palm the ball straight out into danger it's it's something you can do with your hands to get it away from goal it's that's something you you learn more or less the first time you step into a net as a goalkeeper you you're told don't palm it straight back to the striker you palm it away from goal as far as you can as possible I think something that works against Navas as well is his personality. Compare him to the last two goalkeepers we've had in Henderson and Samba. He probably doesn't have that personality and that connection with the Forest fans that Henderson and Samba did. And yes, it's unfair to judge a goalkeeper on personality. But when there's been mistakes with Henderson or Samba. I think the fans have been a bit more forgiving because yes, they would redeem themselves with good saves, but they also had that personality that showed that they cared and they were really involved with the team, with the club, with the supporters. And when that's not there, I think we've noticed it with Navas he's he's a different personality. And I, I don't think there's quite so
1: much goodwill for him as there was for Samba and Henderson, personally. Okay. Well, we'll leave people to chew on that. And something that, of course, uh, Baz in particular has talked about, that element of having a character between the sticks. But uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about midfield in just a little while. But for the time being, I'm going to say thank you to the panel. And uh, we'll be back with more discussions and our Forest quiz. But now it's time
5: for this. The 1865 sketch by Jeremy Davis As Rich and Baz pointed out, Steve Cooper finally addressed the elephant on the pitch for his run of consistently bad luck in the wake of the Brighton game. The old saying goes that it's better to be a lucky manager than a good one. We can still hope that Steve Cooper can show, as Sir Alex Ferguson proved more than once, that it's even better to be both. Although, if events at Brentford are anything to go by, that elephant is going to take some shifting. It is true that relying on luck isn't the ideal strategy for success in football, but there's no denying that it has played a crucial role in many of the game's most legendary triumphs. There is, of course, a well-worn cliché that you make your own luck in sport, exemplified by the famous line from Jack Nicklaus that the harder he worked, the luckier he became. So, maybe getting lucky is just down to working harder than anyone else. Well, for all that, footballers rarely leave anything to chance when it comes to getting luck on their side, as the array of superstar superstitions from going out third in the lineup to hanging onto the same pair of boots for the next game after scoring a goal amply demonstrate. If Forrest do need a 13th man at home to Southampton, relying on luck is probably safer than relying on John Joe Shelby. Philosophy and football have enjoyed a close relationship ever since Archimedes went for history's first early bath and had his eureka moment. The great philosophers Plato, Socrates, Kant, Kant and have wrestled with the concept of luck for centuries. Aristotle identified two strains of luck. Inconsistent luck, such as a man who goes to the market to get some pomegranates and happens to meet another guy who owes him money and duly pays him back. Thus, the man has achieved an existing goal in going about other business, he has set himself, gaining an unexpected reward from taking positive action. A little bit like Mar Gump's Life is a Box of Chocolates analogy. You never know what you're going to get, but you'll get nothing if you don't even open the box. I suppose it's a bit like Forrest going shopping in Brazil for skateboarding Gus Scarpa, and coming back with Danilo as well. Yet Aristotle also speculates on the existence of a second type of lucky person, the consistently lucky, who succeed again and again without recourse to rational thought. Sounds a bit like Jamie Vardy to me, even if it's at odds with paragons of football inconsistency such as the incorrigibly rational James Mildo or Gareth Barry. Interestingly, Aristotle goes on to speculate that this type of consistent luck could be down to internal desire. In footballing parlance, the consistently lucky simply want it more. A further element in Greek philosophy is the idea of moral luck. Should a person's actions be judged morally dependent on their outcome? The classic example given by philosophers is that two drivers could be speeding in their cars... I suppose it would have been chariots in Aristotle's day on the same stretch of road, but one hits a child and is duly punished and the other escapes any moral censure purely because luck dictated that no one was crossing at the time. In other words, we're talking about intent. Aristotle and co. could just as easily have been talking about the handball law or indeed the offside rule. No one ever intends to be caught offside, right? And what if they aren't interfering with play? Although, as Brian Clough said, if one of my players isn't interfering with play, he's not getting paid. Clearly, no one thought to tell Winston Bohada. Another reference for our younger listeners there. The moral of this particular sketch, if there's an elephant on your pitch, you may not be long for the Premier League circus.
1: Learn more at marines.com. You're listening to
5: 1865, the Nottingham Forest Podcast.
1: Welcome back to 1865, the Nottingham Forest Podcast. And we want to say thank you to Jeremy for a philosophical take on this month's sketch. Now, before we move on with our discussion, we'd like to hark back to the display at the Liverpool match in solidarity with Hillsborough victims, survivors and their families. I spoke to one of the men behind the campaign. Pete you are one of the brains behind the recent banner that Forest supporters displayed in the away end at Liverpool uh, in a in a match that took place just a week after the anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster so you have been in the news uh, and you have told the story i suppose of how it's come about and and what I think everyone has respected is the fact that you are doing this with a view to educating people, especially younger fans. But what we maybe haven't heard so much of is, is how this came about.
2: Yeah, hi, Rich. Just to be very clear, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. It was somebody else's idea, and I was part of a group that, that, that ran with it. Uh, the idea came out at a meeting of the Hill for Survivor Supporter Alliance, which includes a, a mixture of Liverpool supporters and Forest Supporters and the meeting had done its business and um, the Liverpool contingent got round to how, as I suspect they often do, as to how the tragedy taunting hurts them, how it triggers people. Um, that they're, On a weekend where it's been particularly bad, the organisers of that group get a lot more calls from people contemplating suicide and self-harm, um, people who still aren't able to attend the matches. Then it came, it came the, the talk turned to, how will this ever end? How will it ever end? And some, somebody else, I can't even remember, on their side or outside, I said, the only people who will ever end it are supporters. The only people who yeah, the, the FA aren't going to do it. The police aren't going to do it. The clubs aren't going to do it. It'll be supporters. And somebody else, certainly wasn't me, said, that probably ought to be Forest supporters then. Why not Why not it be Forest that, that kick-starts it? We were there. We've got people who are affected by it as well. Um, it ought to be us. And then the idea of the banner uh, kind, of, kind of grew of a better word organically from there let's we're playing you fairly soon why don't why don't we do a why don't we do a banner um and that became a matter of organizing that which wasn't easy and getting the funds together to do that and uh and away we went
1: yeah so just as a reminder i mean the purpose of the banner was about respect to the victims but also solidarity with survivors and i think the 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 overarching thing in terms of That message of no to tragedy chanting was also to recognize the fact that these things have a a lasting impact, not only on families of those who died, but also there's many, many people who survived. And you and I have talked about this on this pod before, about the fact that there are still suicides, obviously after Liverpool's match in Paris, which was so badly handled. There's reports of people who, who took their life after that. And so it felt like a really important gesture. And as a mark of I suppose of that solidarity, the banner was funded entirely by voluntary donations, wasn't it? Uh, you didn't you didn't set up a GoFundMe or anything. It was people saying, Ashley, can we can we chuck a bit of money your way?
2: It was, yeah. you you're good your good self included. Um, but people at both ends. Um people at people at the Forest End, people at the Liverpool end, Spirit of Shankley, their supporters' trust made of a- very sizable contribution to that and were really helpful with getting the whole thing set up, which wasn't easy to manage. Liverpool Football Club were really helpful, yeah, as, as you'd hope they would be, but these things aren't a given, are they? Yeah, but mm. it was in their interest for it to happen. Uh, but there were a lot of um, significant people down our end, well, well connected to the club. Some, some big social media influencers backed it with their social media presence and their tweets and and financially as well so it was a good it was a good team effort we, we actually ended up uh, making a making a small surplus on that and the surplus we offered to give back to the Liverpool end but they they rejected that and said find something useful to do with it in Nottingham um so we've donated uh, another 200 250 pounds to the Trussell trust who are struggling in their work with food banks and homelessness at the minute so it's, it's had a good outcome in that in that respect as well if anybody missed out on helping out with the banner and wants to make a contribution <laughs> some sort of contribution to feel good about chuck, chuck some money the trussell trust way because they're they're on their uppers at the minute
1: what about afterwards so what we know is that what was really good is that it was featured in the coverage of the match and it made Again, the the fact that the banner was held up that went viral uh, on social media, got reported upon. So those are very very positive outcomes, weren't they?
2: It was well received. Uh, there was media interest from Japan, France, Argentina. Um, it made the, it made the national press in Brazil. Um, and I think one thing we wanted to come out of it, as, as well as sort of trying to campaign, was was you know, a bit of self bit of self interest in here. I'm very very proud to support Forrest. I think we're a fantastic inclusive. Club uh, followed by good people, a club that, that generally has the has the right values, and it it was about getting that reflected. And the number of I was I was I didn't get a ticket for Brentford, so I was down in London at Dulwich Hamlet at the at the weekend. I'd already bought the transport, and I might as well go and watch some football. And the number of people I spoke to who who had no idea of my connection to the banner said, uh, "God, I hope Forrester up their proper club. Did you see what they did last week? Mm. Fantastic." So thank you for joining us, Pete. And last but not least, if
1: there's anybody listening who has been triggered, maybe uh, from their own experiences, the experiences of of people they know, is there anywhere that they, you would recommend that they could get support?
2: The Hillsborough Survivors Support Alliance, who are online as um, they're on Twitter as at Hillsborough underscore Su1, um, have people who, who will answer the phone whenever to anybody who's struggling with it. Um, get 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 in touch with them. Uh, you know, I, I know that very recently they, they, they've talked a forest supporter down from throwing himself off Lady Bay Bridge that's, that's the kind of work that they do and that's the kind of thing that's still going on unfortunately so uh, the Hillsborough Survivors Support Alliance at Hillsborough underscore SU1 they're fantastic people and they do a lot of good work for their own supporters and for, and for forest people as well
1: okay thank you very much Pete and it's back to the studio you're listening
5: to 1865 Nottingham Forest
1: Podcast. Thank you very much. And now back to the panel. So let's talk about midfield. Now, just very briefly, um, we heard Jeremy's opinions on John Dre Shelby there. Um, for much of the season, as well as having Shelby adding whatever he does to the midfield. Um, but for much of the season, we've been missing Ryan Yates and Cech Coyote. Now they're on their way back. Danilo has started to look good, but we're waiting to see if he's as injured as he looked. And for in the meantime, we 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 had Ramo Freuler holding midfield for much of the season. And in the meantime, as well, we we let Lewis O'Brien go, which increasingly looks like a foolish decision, according to this particular podcaster. So, what's the secret to Forest having a competitive midfield? Tom, is it down to personnel, tactics, formation, or a bit of all of those?
0: Uh, in the Premier League, it's got to be a bit of all of them. But um, one thing what I've noticed in the last few games is having that legs in midfield, i.e. from Danilo, who's picking up the ball and running with it and wants to, like, his goal against Brighton the uh, the other day where he's, um, he's won the ball, he's uh, given it to one-e and then ran beyond Awani and I can't remember the last time I'm, we had a midfielder who actually went beyond the front man. Um, so, with a bit of legs and energy in there and I think Mangali's stepped up to the plate and I mean, he's, he still makes the odd mistake but him and uh, Danilo, I think they in the last few games, I think they've really played really well, and I sincerely hope Danilo' his injury isn't as bad as, um, the first stage yesterday. i.e. hamstring injury, and he'll be back uh, next Monday.
1: Stephen, uh, I mean, for the 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 Remo Freuler debate, um sort of ra- raged on for a while and now it looks like it's been settled because Mangala's playing that holding role and with Kiate and and hopefully Yates uh, coming back, maybe Steve Cooper looks like he's going for a more of an athletic midfield, whereas Freuler was there almost as a calming influence. What do you think? It seems
4: that way. And I think when you look through the season and look at when Forest have been their most effective, it's when we've had a more athletic midfield. We had that period where Freuler was the holder, and then you had Kiate and Yates, either side being the shuttlers, chasing down, harrying the opposition, and just providing energy in that midfield. And that gave us the, the best chance of competing against teams and the best chance of getting results as well, because... When we were playing open earlier in the season, we we were conceding goals left, right and centre and we looked a mess. But when we tightened things up and we had that energy in the midfield and that controlled energy as well with Yates, Kuyate and Freuler sitting, or now you could put Mangala in that position, that's the best way that we're going to compete this season. An energetic midfield that works hard and is competitive will give us the best chance of getting results. And it's been that way all season.
1: And talking of energy, uh, Adam, uh, the decision to sign John Joe Shelby, who doesn't have, who's not an energetic midfielder, and let Lewis O'Brien, who very much is, although you could argue that Shelby's supposed to be better on the ball, but he's also proven to be pretty good at giving the ball away. Now, letting O'Brien go... I mean, O'Brien said in a recent um, interview with BBC Sport, I have no malicious thoughts about anything that's gone on and I don't hold a grudge. And although he said it wasn't fine in that spell where he thought he was in exile, he does see himself coming back to Forest. He thinks he's got something to offer. Uh, Would you agree with me that it... it, uh, with hindsight, I mean, even actually, not even hindsight at the time, it looked like a baffling decision to let an athletic young midfielder go and bring in a sitting midfielder who known for a Hollywood pass, but is also a red card waiting to happen.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, completely agree. I think that John Joe Shelby is, um, look, there's a lot of words I can describe John Joe Shelby with. Look, I think to me, he, he's just he, he is. He, he has got that sixty-yard pass in his locker, and that's about it, right? And he snaps into a challenge irrationally, gives away silly fouls, um, he's given away penalties. He had the mistake at Villa. I could I could have a list of things that he's done wrong in a Forest shirt, and I I couldn't give you a very big list of things that o, uh, O'Brien did in, wrong in a Forest shirt. I mean, the the Fulham goal. The you know every, every time he, he he stepped on a pitch for Forest, he looked. Like he had something about him, was energetic. He was buzzing around. He was making it difficult for for teams. He's the perfect player to bring on with sort of twenty minutes to go. Um, if he's not starting for us, then that's I understand that. But if you bring him on with twenty minutes to go, when you want a bit of energy in midfield, you want some legs in midfield. He's the perfect player, and I know you've got a short, like a smaller squad, and I, I get that. But letting O'Brien go to bring Shelby in is just a baffling decision, and you can see why the man responsible for a few of those, you know, sub, um, transfers is no longer with the club because it's, Shelby wasn't the only one in January that has completely flopped on its face as a transfer.
5: Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, there's there's potentially an argument, you know, there's some talk that Newcastle fans generally liked Shelby, but I mean, potentially there's an argument there, just as Stephen said about Keylor Navas, that we've caught Shelby on the downward slope and yet we're still shelling out a lot of money for the privilege of, of having him there. Now, I am going to leave that topic there for the time being because we did say we'd talk a little bit about injuries again. And Adam, starting with you, just do we know what the, what the source is? Because the arguments are, firstly, it could be bad luck. And I think we'd all agree that something like Nico's injury, that was bad luck. It could be that the physios and medical staff are not up to spec for Premier League level. And this could also be an argument about, for example, our training facilities. Is that why we're getting so many players with like hamstrings and groin injuries and that kind of thing? Um what do you think, Adam?
3: I think the one that makes the most sense to me is probably the training facilities. Um because um the and I know with the club doctor and that sort of thing, um I don't know I'm not name dropping it, it's no it's no like big thing or anything. I do know the club doctor. Um, and I know that a lot of the players um when they are treated at Forest and stuff if it's more serious to go through a lot of different avenues we're going abroad like Naakata did or they get treated at Queens and that sort of thing so um, I don't think it's the way that we treat treatment is because I don't i mean I, look I don't know this for a fact, and I imagine the medical staff hasn't changed much from last season um and, and there was times last season where Scott McKenna out for six weeks plays on Saturday. Joe Worrell breaks his ribs back in two weeks. So for me, maybe you could just say the players last season just were absolutely desperate to come back, but I don't think it's that at all. I think it must be to do with the facilities or the training um, injuries and that kind of thing, or you're aggravating your muscles before a match day, and then when you come back onto that pitch, you're not getting it back out of there. But we'll never know. I think the frustrating part is, is that if we had no, no club has an in injury-free season, but if we had a a much better record of injuries this season, we might have actually been able to find out what our best 11 is because we're sat with four games to go, and I can ask 20 Forest fans, and they'd probably all give me a, a slightly different best 11 if everyone's fit. And that is a problem.
1: Mm. Tom, uh, I mean, I think that's true, isn't it? Because last, last season, OK, we had a smaller squad, and we didn't own as many players, but last season... The best eleven pretty much picked itself for most of the most of the second half of the season, didn't it? When we we're on that amazing run.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I think it is some of it has been bad luck. Um, especially the one from Nico Williams and Scott McKenna was there just like impact collisions, aren't they? Um but I just looked at said you know, yesterday well, Nick Carter went off against Brighton and I was surprised that he was back yesterday. And I looked at him, and his left leg was heavily strapped. In the he's ha- held the together hashing. with
1: gaffer tape, isn't he?
0: Yeah, pretty much a E as well. You could he come near us, and his shirt got ruffled, and you could see that he's got strapping on his shoulder. Um, and because of all the injuries we've got, I think, and how the Premier League is, if you, I mean, this is a completely different argument. But you know, with um, Guardiola, he's trying to keep everybody fresh. And he's basically, he's got a second 11. We haven't got that luxury. So I think there's players out there who you're trying to ask them, can you just give me that next 10%? And you go and do that and the breaking down. Like Danilo, he looked knackered yesterday. And we tried to get that last five, 10 minutes out of him. Can you just give us a bit more? He goes off with a hamstring injury. And it's just things like that. We're, probably, we're just trying to ask too many players to do probably a bit too much because of the other injuries in our squad. Mm. And it's just coming back to um, haunt us. I think the club will have a look at this in the summer, regardless of what league we're in, because it has hampered our chances this season. I mean, like Adam's alluded to, if we've kept the majority of the core of our squad together and they've been fit for the majority of the season, we could have been in that luxury place now where we could go into these next four or five games. Might have been able to rest a couple, and probably, and if we did have all those players, we could probably like rest a couple and have it on a rotational basis. But so, um, Steve Cooper's is basically left down to the bare bones in some positions so far this season.
1: Stephen, just uh, coming back to what Tom said there, he's he's kind of took the words out of my mouth. Um, just very briefly, it's this is a strategic thing uh, amongst all the other strategic things we've talked about with Forest. The most notable one was that transfer strategy of spending all the money and signing all the players. And yet when you have literally 12 players out on most match days for half a season, there's something strategic that has to be looked at there in terms of the way the club is being run and and, and the facilities and and the way that players are being looked after, surely. I wonder if we got
4: promoted too soon and the club is playing catch up in terms of facilities in medical terms and just for the club as a whole. I, I look at it and think the more that this goes on and the more that we are picking up injuries with such regularity, it makes me think maybe that our facilities are just not ready for Premier League football yet. And okay, that's not helpful because we are a Premier League team now, but it shows you what can happen when, like us, you get promoted so unexpectedly that you are almost not ready for it. And with hindsight, yes, we probably wouldn't have signed all the players that we did, but we didn't have a settled squad to begin with because of circumstance. So we did need players. And without those players, we had been in a, in a real mess now because we would have been pretty much uncompetitive for long spells of the season without being able to bring in replacements. So I'm looking to put a positive spin on it. I hope that this is something that we're going to learn from. And it's an area of the club that's going to develop now off the back of this because they've got to look at this and, and really investigate what's going on because you can't have the players sidelined for the periods of the season Mm -hmm. like we have, because it's damaged our chances of staying up, basically,
1: mm. and it means that if Forest do stay up, it'll be even more of an achievement. People will always look at the headlines and the number of players we've signed and the money spent, but but yeah, I mean, I, I would I would back that up. But anyway, that's it for the discussion because now it's time for this.
5: 1865, the Nottingham Forest quiz.
1: The way this works is I will ask five questions, multiple choice, from the Forest Quiz Book written by Chris Carpenter. Our panelists will call out their name if they think they know the answer. Do play along at home. So, question number one: Who has won the most international caps as whilst a Nottingham Forest player? Is it A. Nigel Clough, B. Stuart Pearce, or C. Kevin Ratcliffe? Tom. Hello, Tom.
0: Stuart Pierce.
1: It is indeed Stuart Pierce, who won 76 England caps while he was a Nottingham Vice player. Uh, Kevin Ratcliffe obviously put in there as a bit of a red herring. So the next one. As an England player, how many international goals did Stuart Pierce score? Was it A, four, B, five, or C, six? Stephen. Stephen? Five. It was five goals, which, as it says here, is not bad for a left back. Let's move on. Who is the youngest player ever to represent Forest? Is it Wally Ardron, B Roy Keane, or C Craig Westcar? Tom. Go on, Tom. Craig Westcar. Do you remember how old he was? Thank you, 16. Exactly. He made his first team appearance at the age of 16 years old against Burnley in 2001. And on a similar theme, who is, by the way, Adam, you're going to have to get get moving if you want to get in this quiz. Um, (laughs) Who is the youngest ever goal scorer for the club? Is it A, Chris Bart Williams, B, Nathaniel Chalabar or C, Roy Keane? Adam. Oh, I'm going to give it Adam.
3: I have no idea, but I'm just gonna say Roy Keane.
1: Oh, is incorrect, right. Tom.
0: Uh, Shalabar.
1: It is Nathaniel Shalabar. He's the youngest ever goal scorer at the age of 18 years and 319 days against Yeovil on the 26th of October 2013. Bonus point if you know who's the youngest ever Premier League goal scorer for Forrest. I'll open that up to everyone. Brennan? Is not correct. I'm going to give you the answer. This is just for a bonus point. It was Marlon Harewood in November 1998, when he was 19 years and 68 days old.
0: Was that against
2: Middlesbrough?
1: Um, Maybe. And (laughs) um, last but not least, who is the oldest player ever to represent the club? Is it A. Jose Baxter, B Ted Sagar, or C Des Walker? Stephen, go on, Stephen Des Walker. Des Walker, and do you remember how old he was?
4: Oh, he's 39, I
1: think, and I've got him You're playing against Wigan. Yeah, uh, playing against Wigan in 2004. Um, Jose Baxter was an olden player. He used to be at Everton, I think. And so there's obviously a bit of an Everton thing going, running through Chris Carpenter's <laughs> questions.
0: I think it was Dave person,
1: You know what? You know what? I've... He's an
3: outfield player, though. So. It, yeah, yeah, it doesn't say it
1: doesn't say outfield player, but I think you're right, Tom. I think you're right. And so
0: I think he was forty odd when he was playing we got relegated.
1: Yeah. I think he was uh, forty-two, wasn't he, when he left eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think you should write a strongly worded email to Chris Carpenter, the author of the <laughs> quiz book. I want to say very a bit, very big thank you to today's panel, Adam, Tom and Stephen, and to Jeremy also for the sketch. Most of all, thank you, listener, for joining us and for the comments on social media, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. If you like what you hear, please do share our podcast via social media, tell your friends, leave us a review with a comment, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back after the Southampton match, but until then, in the spirit of Jerry Springer, do look after yourselves and each other. If there's any yeah. lawyers listening, I'd like to point out we have no money, so don't come after us. <laughs>